This week on the Pressure Cast, PlayStation 4 games come to personal computers, Nintendo ramps up Switch production, and I talk about my favorite video games of all time. It's Monday, March 20th, 2017. Everything happening in the world of video games is here, now on the Pressure Cast. Pressure Pals, welcome to the 173rd episode of the Pressure Cast. Video games are dumb.com's weekly news panic that posts every single Monday on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, and America's longest running independent newspaper at shepherdexpress.com. My name is Colin Tanner, reminding you that Blue Heaven is a place on Earth, and I'm here to ramble to you about some goddamn video games for the next, I don't know, 90 minutes, two hours. We'll see. You already know how long it's going to be because you can see the timestamp. I can't because I'm in the past. This is like time travel, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, we have a lot to get to this week. There's tons of news, but in case you never listened to the show before, it's actually, uh, it's not that complicated. We have several different uh, segments in which we talk about different aspects of the video game industry. When we get to the hype train, we're going to be talking about all the latest upcoming games and events. When we get to the chart park, we're going to be talking about the best-selling video games and financial and legal news. And then we're going to wrap it up with strong history, where we talk about the anniversaries for the upcoming week. So on Monday, you can be like, Wow, I can't believe that game came out today, 20 years ago. And then you can impress your friends with your knowledge. If you have friends. And if you don't, I'm sure it'll be a good icebreaker. But let's start off the show with one of my favorite segments. One that's, you know, close to my heart. It's something I like to call, thank you for the email. Yes, thank you for the email. This is where you contact the Pressure Cast, either through the YouTube comments, because of course this is a YouTube video as well as a podcast, or you can email pressurecast at gmail.com, tweet at VGA Dumb, that stands for Video Games Are Dumb, tweet at VGA Dumb, leave a comment on the Facebook at facebook.com slash VGA Dumb, or you can even, uh, you know, call or text, pick up the old telephone, call or text 954-947-7377, leave a voicemail, have your voice heard on air, or leave a text message and I'll read it out loud. I got a message from Jimski Tesla, and last week we were talking about uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, an amazing game, an incredible game. But one of those games that I said wasn't one of my favorites of all time. Here's what Jim said. He said, uh, you said, <laughs> he said, you said, we said, <laughs> he said, you said, Zelda wouldn't make your all-time top five. So what games do make your all-time top five games of all time? Well, here's the thing, Jim. Here's the thing. My favorite games of all time changes pretty much on an hourly basis. I can't help it. I've played so many games from so many different generations. Uh, but recently, there have been these posts on Twitter where people are taking every year of their life and talking about, you know, what is the best game that uh, came out throughout their life based off of the year does that make sense it'll make sense once i get to it so this morning i just basically rushed through and i made a list is this definitive absolutely not does this actually reflect what would be my uh top uh 31 games of all time absolutely not i just put a list together and these are the games that i felt really enthusiastic about this morning if you ask me to make this list tomorrow i would probably change a few things and the next day i would change it again and maybe it would go back to the original list but whatever you get the concept so without further ado here are 30 of my favorite games of all time are they the 30 
No, we already went through this, so please relax if I don't mention enough JRPGs and platformers, because hint hint, there's none on the list. I didn't even mean that. I love JRPGs and I love platformers. Whatever. Let's start off with 1986. Castlevania. One of the best games of all time, and I know a lot of people take it for granted because they go, Castlevania, you, you just jump and you hit things. But back in 1986, this was absolutely revolutionary. And you might be saying, wait a minute, didn't that come out in 1987 or 1988? I'm basing this off of whenever the game came out, either in Japan or America. I'm playing fast and loose with the rules here. Anyway, 1987, Punch-Out! And also, I guess I can lump into this, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out! Such a good game. It's all about just memorizing patterns, but even if you memorize the patterns, you have to execute uh, just based off of, I, I don't know, just that hand-eye coordination. And also, uh, learning the sounds of everything, knowing exactly when to uh, block, uh, I forget his name, Tiger? Uh, when he'd spin around, he'd punch you. You have to block at this exact moment every time, and it's so cool. It's such an enriching game, and even, you know, especially back in 1987, the sprites were huge on the NES, and the idea that you were just gonna knock out this Goliath in front of you Super cool. I love Little Mac. I love the Punch-Out! series. A 1988 Mega Man 2. Come on! Mega Man 2! Everybody's played Mega Man 2. It's such a good game. And I remember growing up and playing the Mega Man series and just knowing there was something special about these games. There was something different about it. Just the way every single enemy looked was special. It felt like a, like a cartoon character. It felt like it had, a, you know, a personality and an identity. And they would just be these simple little creatures. Like, there would be these robot bats <laughs> that were also shaped like bombs that would fly down and try and hit you. And they were super annoying. But at the same time, it's like, ah, oh, I just want to look at this thing. This is fascinating. Also, being able to get all the abilities from the people that you defeated. So you'd beat a, a robot boss and then you'd have their power. Such a cool concept. It really added a lot of depth to the game. And especially because you could experiment with all those different powers and, and the music. And oh, just so much. Mega Man 2, fantastic. Uh, 1989, a underrated gem on the NES. A game called North and South. And if you've never played North and South... I bet there's a way to play NES games on your phone or on your computer. I don't know. I don't know how you do that with your techno wizardry, but maybe there's a way you could play some NES games on your computer, and I'd recommend getting a buddy and playing North and South. Yes, this takes place in the Civil War, but don't worry. They don't really talk about... ...things that were going on then. Genocide. Kind of a holocaust going on and slavery. Ugh. But uh, the game itself is actually really fun. You either play as the North or the, the South. The Confederate Army and the... But that's not the point. The point is that you and your buddies basically play through a series of mini-games. Uh, but it's... It's sparsed out between three different uh, situations where either uh, you're trying to invade their base and they can use 20 characters to try and stop you. So every time that you they feel you're getting too far, you just press a button, drop in a guy and try and stop them before the timer runs out. Uh, which is super cool, really original, really hasn't been duplicated anywhere. And then there's sort of a, an action RTS element to it where you use cannons uh, and, uh, and horses and soldiers and they all have their own control and feel. Some can only be shot from a certain area, others are mobile, others are mobile but can't be stopped, they have to run across the screen. Kind of difficult to explain, North and South, super good game. Uh, 1990, River City Ransom. Arguably the best beat-em-up, 2D beat-em-up of all time. More so than Double Dragon, more so than Final Fight, more so than Streets of Rage, more so than Knights of the Round, more so than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, more so than just about anything I can think of. River City Ransom has depth to it. There's RPG elements. You can actually level up. You can get new items that change the way your character works. You can read books, eat food, go to towns. 
it's badass. All the while, it's a stupid story because it's just you running around fighting fellow high school students. Uh, and of course, it just there's a charm to it. There's a humor to it because it's part of the uh, Kunio Kun series. The same thing from uh, uh, Dodgeball and uh, uh, Crash and the Boys. They just have this square heads and bulges eyes, and when they beat the crap out of each other, they say things like barf and ouch and. Man, it's just a great game. I didn't play it until, I want to say, 1997? I played it way later, and it still held my attention. It was fantastic. Uh, 1991, Street Fighter, The World Warrior. Come on, it's Street Fighter. I don't need to harp on this anymore. You know what Street Fighter is. We're just going to move on. Uh, 1992, Wolfenstein 3D. I actually had a computer at the time, and I played Wolfenstein when it came out, when it was doing that episodic run, because uh, it, it didn't come all as one package. You actually had to pay for it. And it was uh, kind of like a precursor to what we see nowadays with things like Telltale and uh, and even Hitman. And that game just blew my mind. You know, it really put me in that perspective of being like, oh man, I'm trapped in this weird castle all by myself. Even though I have all these guns, I feel outnumbered. So every every combat situation was super tense. And, and, and the more powerful you got when you started just blasting back people with your awesome chain gun, eventually fighting Hitler in one of the sequels and watching his organs fall out. Just a great game back then. I didn't put Doom on the list. What are you going to do? Uh, 1993, Gunstar Heroes. Gunstar Heroes is basically the precursor to what we see in stylish action gameplay. Uh, prior to that, games would be very action-centric, and they'd be kind of cutesy or, you know, whatever. Gunstar Heroes just wanted to be cool. It wanted to be, like, the coolest action game ever. You and a buddy basically go throughout these gigantic uh, bases that are run by these, these evil bosses. I don't know. The story never really made much sense in it, but you and a buddy, basically, it's like Contra, except you can swap out your weapons and even combine them. So, let's say you have a laser gun, or you have, like, green bullets, and the green bullets are homing, and the laser is kind of short. If you combine them together, the laser will just bounce around the screen and take out everyone. It's immensely satisfying. There's tons of explosions, lots of good music. You go to outer space at one point, it goes everywhere, and you're fighting a train? God damn, I love Gunstar Heroes. Now, that might be in my top five of all time right there. Uh, number, oh, not number, 1994, Sonic the Hedgehog 3, my personal favorite Sonic game. I know a lot of people say, oh, you need to have Sonic and Knuckles to make the perfect Sonic experience. Yeah, it didn't have the best ending or anything like that, but just the basic gameplay, I feel, has never been, uh, before or since, better for a Sonic title. Sonic 3 just had just a great flow to it, a great feel to it. There were plenty of points where you could actually get a lot of speed and have a lot of control and then there were just nice little spectacles where Sonic would be spinning around inside of a tree or taking out a gigantic aircraft carrier. It's such a good game. Love Sonic uh, 3 on the Sega Genesis. Number 5, an adventure game, Full Throttle. Uh, I was really debating, you know, in 1993 or was it 92? Day of the Tentacle was on there, and I'm like, oh man, I really love Day of the Tentacle, but I feel like I love this game more. The 1995, I'm like, I don't really see a whole lot of games that I really love, like truly passionately would be like, that's the best game of that year. And then I saw Full Throttle, and uh, that just spoke to me right away. In case you don't know, it's an adventure game where you play as a biker who uh, has been accused of, of murdering uh, basically the CEO and president of a, a biker motorcycle company. It's really bizarre, but it's actually a more serious game uh, that was written by uh, Tim Schafer, the guy that would go on to do uh, Psychonauts and uh, uh, Broken Age, the most recent Broken Age, and also, uh, you know, Brutal Legend. 
And I would say this is more aligned with kind of brutal legend where there's a lot of silliness going on, but it's taken kind of uh, seriously. And they even have their own road rash ripoff where you can fight a guy with a chainsaw. It's awesome. I love uh, Full Throttle. 1996, Parappa the Rapper. You better believe I love Parappa the Rapper. I mean, there are a lot of great games in 1996, but there is still nothing else quite like Parappa the Rapper. Sure, you could point to things like Guitar Man and the Hatsumiku series, and that's fine, but, you know, Prappa is is a story about you know high school kid trying to fit in. He wants to be cool. He wants to be the hero, but he is lame. He is not cool. Uh, but he has heart. He has real heart, and he's going to try his best to to win over the love of his life, Sunny Funny, who is a flower. And by the way, he's a dog, and he hangs out with uh, people that have potted plants for heads. It's one of those games where the art style just jumps out at you. All the characters are in two dimensions, whereas a lot of the buildings are, are three-dimensional. It's strange. It feels like you're watching pieces of paper hang out together. And they never really call attention to it, which is even better. Like, it, they just treat it like it's normal. It basically reminds me of, uh, <laughs> if you know uh, De La Soul, they have an album cover called De La Soul is Dead. It's like if they took that and made a cartoon show out of it. It's so much fun. It's a rhythm game, and you're going to see another rhythm game on this list, because I love those styles of games. And, uh, I don't know, it's just has so much charm to it, and also just the music. If you've never played Prep of the Rapper, I highly recommend you go out and look up Stage 2. It's the one where it's uh, driving instructing. Uh, he's uh, he's taking a driver's test, and it just has this great, just rhythmic piano. I love that game. God damn, I love Prep of the Rapper. Anyway, 1997, Castlevania, Symphony of the Night. Bar none, you can't beat that. Castlevania. Even though everyone was rushing towards the third dimension and, and people said, oh, who cares about this 2D Castlevania? Now I want to see Castlevania in 3D. I guess we know better now because Castlevania Symphony of the Night is arguably the best Castlevania game. And that's saying a lot because Castlevania is one of the best franchises all around. This is the first time I really noticed RPG elements and, and leveling up and progression inside of an, you know, like an action exploration scenario. This is the game that created the idea of a Metroidvania where you could go anywhere in the castle. You could revisit certain areas. You could find extra items. Just the amount of stuff in this game, the amount of weapons, like individual weapons that, that actually look different feel different, play different, uh, and every environment has its own aesthetic and mood and tone. There were areas that felt sad, there were areas that felt epic and strong, there were areas that felt rather somber. You know, going from a library to a catacomb to, uh, uh, the crumbling parts of the castle, it's, uh, it's an absolute masterpiece. Goddamn. I don't even think I can... I'm just ignore that. Uh, 1998, Resident Evil 2. This is, this was the game I was waiting for. I remember when Resident Evil 2 came out because I had played Resident Evil 1 to death. I had played Resident Evil 1 in its, in its tall box incarnation on the uh, PlayStation 1. And then I got the director's cut and then I got the DualShock edition. And I was looking up everything on the internet, trying to see the original Japanese intro where I could see this severed hand that was edited out of the American release. I loved Resident Evil, and I was kind of skeptical. I was a little nervous in my stomach because by by this point, I knew that there were such things as bad sequels to great video games. And when Resident Evil 2 came out, it just it hit every note that I wanted. Uh, and one of the things that always bothered me about uh, future Resident Evil games is that they almost kind of celebrate the violence. They almost celebrate the, uh, the uh, zombie apocalypse. And Resident Evil 2 reminded people that no this this is a sad situation there are thousands of people dying and there's a somberness to that entire game that i don't think was really matched in any of the sequels i feel like it was touched upon in resident evil 4 but not really anywhere else including even uh resident evil 7 
but going throughout the entirety of Raccoon City, fighting off zombies, and just the concept of the G-Virus. This evil scientist, well he's not an evil scientist, but he's a scientist, injects himself with this stuff and he just continuously mutates in these disgusting forms, eyeballs popping out of places, teeth where teeth do not belong. It is fascinating. Uh, some of the best design I would say, just from a character standpoint, in video games ever is, is are the continuous uh, is the continuous metamorphosis of what comes from the G virus. It's so cool. Anyway, uh, 1999, it's Shenmue on the Dreamcast because remember, it was released in Japan in 1999, and it was also the final release by Sega in the 20th century. Pretty cool fact. Bet you didn't know that. You're lucky. <laughs> I told you about it. Uh, why? Why Shenmue? Well. If I'm being honest, I didn't put Shenmue 2 on the list because I felt like I could kind of get away with sneaking it in here and just saying, hey, Shenmue 1 and 2, they are they're one series, right? They're, they're all continuations of a story. So I'm going to put Shenmue 1 and Shenmue 2 in here. What I love so much is that the very first Shenmue is basically about a kid in his hometown trying to be a detective. And while a lot of people were like, this is boring, this, this kid, he doesn't know what he's doing, that's kind of the point. He's not a detective. And it's really about what would a 17-year-old do do uh, to, to track down the killer of his father and he goes into a lot of red herrings and he goes in the wrong direction all the time uh, half of the time what you're doing is just a waste and he just doesn't have any idea because he has no concept of of maybe uh, you know more mature social cues and he just stumbles into things and it all takes place in a single small town in Japan and you really get to know that environment. You get to know all of the shopkeepers. And they're all real people. They all have their own um, schedules. They show up at 8 o'clock. They leave by uh, 8.30. It's fascinating. Well, okay, 8, 8 o'clock in the morning. They don't just hang out for a half an hour. 8 o'clock in the morning, and then they leave at 8.30. <laughs> Whatever. But in Shenmue 2, it opens up to this gigantic environment of China. Uh, Hong Kong specifically, if I recall correctly. And just watching... You know, Ryo, the, the the main character of Shenmue, take all those lessons that he's learned, and he's he's now very skeptical of the world around him. He's not as trusting as he was before, and entering uh, China and just being put into situations that are so much worse than we dealt with in Japan. Because if you play the first game, you're thinking, oh man, yeah, okay, this is kind of a, a PG style game. Then you go to Shenmue 2, it's like, oh shit, that person has a chainsaw and is trying to chop off his head. It goes places, man. Love Shenmue 1 and 2. Please create the HD re-releases. Uh, 2000, yeah, the year 2000, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. I don't think I need to praise this game any more than what's been said. It's a game where you're on a skateboard, you listen to awesome punk rock and hip-hop songs, and just skate around. I feel like I could play that game for years, just getting lost in those very small environments, but millions of possibilities. It just, that game has a feel. It has a feel when you play the control. Uh, 2001, Fantasy Star Online. I lost uh, months of my life to Fantasy Star uh, online on the Dreamcast. I went down some weird rabbit holes with uh, using Game Sharks, and and people were giving me Game Shark codes to unlock specific abilities. And uh, yeah, uh, let's just move on. 2002, underrated game, Way of the Samurai. It's a game that takes place over the course of three days. You are a, uh, a Ronin, a wandering samurai, and you enter into a town, and there's just uh, a, a sort of a bit of a crisis going on. There is one clan that is fighting with another clan, and there are people in the middle of the town that are having to deal with the ramifications of those battles. You come in, and you do whatever you want. And and there are multiple endings. There are multiple ways to play the game. You could run around and cut a lot of people down, or you could have a lot more discussions. You can just kill main characters. You can just walk up and just kill a main character in the first five minutes. There's nothing stopping you. 
and it, it affects the ending. The game can be either three and a half hours long or it could be an hour long. It's really cool. And I know there's been a lot of sequels, but they've always seemed to be a bit too jokey for me. I kind of liked how the game played it straight and then at the same time you could kick food off of the ground and just eat it. <laughs> just one big gulp. Uh, but the rest of the games felt a little bit too funny for my taste, uh, but you know, Still great. Still a great game. I'd love an HD remaster of that. Please make that happen. 2003, WarioWare Incorporated Micro Mini Games on the Game Boy Advance. This game blew my mind when it came out because, you know, you you go into every video game by this point with the expectation that there will be a series of mechanics that are introduced to you through uh, either tutorials or through very basic levels and then you ramp up, you progress, and you learn new skills that you will then apply to future uh, encounters. Not with WarioWare, literally every five seconds it's just saying jump or draw or chisel or pick or whatever. You never knew what you were going to get. It just threw things at you. It just trusted that yes, you are going to be able to figure this out. Oh, okay. I just see Wario saying that there's a car. Oh, I'll press the A button and he jumps over the car. What? Oh no, now I gotta, there's a fly. I gotta swat the, oh, I gotta fly swatter. I'll wait for the fly to, okay, good. All right, now we're moving on. It's just every two seconds it was a brand new game. That game just so good, so good, and it's a real shame we don't have more WarioWare games. I love WarioWare. Uh, 2004, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. I put it here in 2004 because, you know, if I would wait until I believe 2006, uh, there would be um, uh, Subsistence, which introduced the third-person camera, which that is the way to play this game, and pretty much the only way to play it if you want to, you you know, actually pick up the game on relatively modern hardware. That's what it's like when you play it on on the Metal Gear Collection on uh, PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 or Vita. But this game, Snake Eater, really made me realize the potential of game design and storytelling. And Kojima's fantastic at that. Obviously the first Metal Gear uh, Solid and its sequel were, were, were you know, monumental moments of, of saying what is possible in games. How can we tell a story? Metal Gear Solid 3, on the other hand, felt like it was actually trying to tell me something, specifically just me, and I know it's not true, I know they were trying to say it to everyone, but it really introduced the concept of morality to a much higher degree. In the other games, you could either kill people or not kill people, or at least in the second Metal Gear Solid. This one actually showed you what you did. You actually had an outcome based off of your actions, and that stuck with me for years, and that just really raised the bar of what I expect out of video games. So Metal Gear Solid 4, amazing game. Uh, 2005, Killer7. I love Killer7. In case you've never played it before, Killer7 is a game where you play as seven different assassins, all inside of the same body, and you have to solve puzzles, and, um, yeah, you're also shooting, uh, bombs? You're shooting, but they're, but they're, they're human bombs, but they're not human, they're like clones, uh, and you have to slit your wrists to solve the puzzles to... To, uh, to become the luchador and blow up the walls. It's just bonkers shit. And of course it is because it's Suda51. This is the guy who made things like Shadows of the Damned, Lollipop Chainsaw, all those types of games. Every second, you're just like, what's going to happen next? And it is truly bizarre from the get-go. I remember playing the game and it goes to a screen. It goes, the year is 1999 and all air travel has been banned. No, it hasn't. What are you talking about? Like right off the beginning of the game, it just says, we're not going to be following the rules of anyone's world but our own. And uh, it has a lot to say about politics. It has a lot to say about religion. It has a lot to say about um, identity. And it's all wrapped inside this really harsh uh, 
you know, art style. And people always look at the game and go, oh, the graphics are terrible. But they're supposed to look like that. It reminds me of the, um, if you've ever seen the music video, Money for Nothing, <laughs> you know? It looks a lot like that. Uh, but it's very jagged and geometrical and harsh, but that is deliberate because it's trying to... I don't know, it kind of wants you to know it's a video game. And there's something really refreshing about that. Maybe it's just me. I don't want to spoil too much because I hope they do an HD re-release of Killer7. Anyway, 2006, Dead Rising on the Xbox 360. This is the game that got me to buy an Xbox 360 because at this point I was, um... I just thought Ken and Fune could do no wrong. Sadly, I found out later he could definitely do a lot wrong, but... Dead Rising is a game where, once again, it's over the course of three days, kind of like Way of the Samurai. I'm starting to realize what I kind of appreciate in games, uh, where you have to basically solve as many missions as possible while amidst a zombie apocalypse. And do you have to solve the missions? No, but then you won't really get the real ending. And everything is based around a schedule. And so it's like, okay, at 1 o'clock, by 1 o'clock, I need to go help that lady who's looking for a dog. And then at 2 o'clock, I have to go and defeat an evil clown. And then at 3 o'clock, I need to go get supplies from, uh, you know, a pharmacy that's across another mall while fighting off zombies and hitting them with 2x4s and, and, uh, and chainsaws and axes. And what you learn halfway through is it's pretty much impossible to beat the game. So you have to restart, but when you restart, all of your experience, because you're leveling up everything all along, the way, how fast you run, how hard you can hit things, uh, how durable your items are, how many items you can hold, you're leveling up all the way. So when you restart the game out of frustration because you didn't reach a certain area by a certain time, suddenly you have all your new abilities and those really easy bits. And so you start accomplishing more and more and more. Love Dead Rising, such a good game. Okay, 2007, Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare, just a great multiplayer game. Had to put it on the list. It was, I don't want to just harp on that game because I feel like that's so new that... I'm not going to be talking about these games as much because I feel like everyone that's listening knows what I'm talking about. Uh, 2008, Grand Theft Auto 4. Grand Theft Auto 4 is the best Grand Theft Auto of all time. It is, bar none. Grand Theft Auto 5 might have a big world. Amazing world. Wonderfully designed. Uh, its characters are boring. Oh, that's because they're bad people. You're not supposed to like them. Well, Nico is a bad person, and you're not supposed to like him either, but you do. The entire collection of Grand Theft Auto 4 and its DLC is the best thing Rockstar has ever done. Ever. More so than Red Dead Redemption. More so than, uh, you know, whatever they're working on, Max Payne 3. That had the perfect balance of a real world. I know a lot of people looked at it at the time, and just kind of took it at face value for what it is. But go back and play Grand Theft Auto 4 right now, and that is their rendition of that time and place, 2008. It really feels like you're in the, the late uh, Bush administration uh, and still the reactions to 9-11. It feels like you're playing a Vice City or San Andreas that was made for today to talk about 2008. It's pretty shocking, so go check it out. Um, 2009, Beatles Rock Band. Such a such an incredible, incredible, incredible game. It is a rhythm game that, that features the Beatles. And I know you might be wondering why this one? Why Beatles Rock Band? Why not just Rock Band 3? Because there's more instruments and, and things like that. Reason I put Beatles Rock Band here is because first and foremost, it's Beatles music. If you like the Beatles, you can't beat that. And the Beatles are pretty amazing. I didn't even like the Beatles, and then I played Beatles Rock Band, and then I loved the Beatles. But what is so cool about this game is it's actually uh, one of the rare cases of a biography. 
a game that's actually talking about history, of course with a certain angle and a slant and maybe a little bit more forgiving in some aspects to the, the, the flaws of the individuals themselves, but the Beatles rock band starts off in the Cavern Club, you know, the, the place where the Beatles started, not very high profile, you know, very harsh lights coming from uh, all angles in a very small seedy stage. And then it just progresses to bigger and bigger and bigger stadiums and you hear the music change. But in case you don't know, the Beatles stopped performing live after a while. And, you know, maybe I think it was 1966. So how do they cover that material? Probably their best known material. They go inside the studio with them. And what happens is while they're playing the music, everything starts to change. Like during the song Yellow Submarine, the entire studio starts to fill up with water. And then there's, you know, submarines going around and people swimming. And it's, it's one of those things where it sort of shows you how a song takes you somewhere and also how artists evolve over time. And I don't feel like that's ever been talked about in video games, even outside of music. And I respect that. So good work there. 2010, Red Dead Redemption. Everybody praises that game, so I'm just going to leave it like that. 2011, on the other hand, L.A. Noir, one of my favorite games of all time. L.A. Noir is this game that takes place in the late 1940s. You are a detective who's working himself through the ranks, working himself up to the ranks, there you go, uh, of the Los Angeles Police Department. And this game is not shy to talk about the issues of the era. Uh, there are more cases that you walk away from going, I don't think we got the right guy, but everyone else at the police station is like, good job, here's a cigar. And that sense of doubt and, and sort of the realization that, you know, criminal justice is a flawed system that will inevitably hurt good people or even just innocent people and shuffling them into the, the jail system. We never talk about that in video games. It's a very uncomfortable issue because there is no answer, especially by putting this in the late 1940s. You walk away just being like, yeah, everything was fucked. Everything was absolutely fucked. And it still kind of is. So, but what's cool is, um, they actually recreated, uh, 1947 Los Angeles and it's just, it's gorgeous. It's just gorgeous to be able to drive around environments and just see everything and just really take in what it was like to be a part of a, a growing city right right when you know World War II had ended and, and people are finally starting to make a little bit of money. We're starting to see that economic boom and being part of Hollywood and seeing the drugs and the chaos. L.A. Noir, criminally underrated, highly recommended, and the facial animations, dear God, they actually record people's faces and put it right in the game. That was revolutionary at the time. Now everybody kind of does it. Well, not everybody. You're not going to see it in the newest Skylanders, but uh, maybe you will. Uh, 2012, 30 Flights of Loving. It's a game that can be, you know, beaten in 15 minutes. And I don't want to say much about 30 Flights of Loving, except that it is... It's a concept we're starting to see in more and more games, the way that you alter perspective when you're playing a game, and it really nails it. It's 15 minutes long. You also get, uh, you know, another game packaged, packaged in with it. So go on Steam and go pick up yourself a copy of 30 Flights of Loving. Uh, 2013, The Last of Us, just a great game. It's all about story. I love the way that it communicates through through gameplay and uh, just the way that there, there are conversations intermixed with just general platforming and, and looking for resources that actually developed the characters. It's uh, brilliant, and I wish more games would do it. Um, besides just being snarky, like, man, why are we always looking for these bolts and nuts? Shut up and get back to work. <laughs> They're pointing out that what I'm doing is stupid. <laughs> That's cool, but I still have to fucking do it. <laughs> anyway, 2014, Bayonetta 2 on the Wii U. The only Wii U game you're going to be seeing on this list, Bayonetta 2 is just the, the best action game possibly of all time. It is so good. 
you are a witch who has the ability to summon demons uh, from outside of uh, this dimension to punch things. So you'll be fighting a demon, you'll be like, punch, 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 and then a giant fist opens up and just goes wham and knocks the people off the screen. Bayonetta is a sort of a divisive figure because she is a very, um, very uh, erotic looking character. And I've seen two different uh, feminist arguments on this. One that says that she's very empowering. Others that say she is a problematic figure because she's often nude inside the video game. Me personally, I kind of fell on the side of empowerment because she is not looking to attract anyone. She is not trying to be becoming to an individual or, or just in general. She is just big deal. Not wearing clothes, don't don't give a fuck. Uh, the reason I'm not wearing clothes is because my my clothes are made out of my hair, and my hair is what gives me powers. It's weird. It's amazing. Bayonetta 2, silky smooth controls, amazing graphics. Santa Claus driving up a skyscraper while you're fighting demons off of jets. I'm not making this up, and that's just in the first five minutes. Let's go over to 2015. I really debated this because for me, the really the best game of 2015 is Metal Gear Solid The Phantom Pain, right? Uh, if you go back and listen, that was the best game of the year, according to me. But like I said, my list changed daily and the close second place, the closest second place was Undertale, an amazing indie RPG. And I know when I say the word indie, people go, oh, okay, cool. I'm not going to play it. It's indie. Please do. Please play Undertale. If you have a MacBook from 2007, I'm sure you can run Undertale. It is an RPG where you don't have to kill anybody. But if you don't kill anybody, you kind of have to solve puzzles. It's a perfect merger of top-down shooters, uh, occasional platforming, uh, adventure games, JRPGs, with some of the best music, some of the best written characters. I really don't want to tell you what it's about, because you should experience this on your own. It's a relatively short game. You can beat it in about five hours, and then you'll want to play it again. And I highly recommend that you do. And then, of course, 2016, Titanfall 2. Because Titanfall 2, pound for pound, second for second, is incredible. Every moment, you are seeing something in a way that you have not seen before. You have giant robots falling from the sky and fighting each other. And the more they fight each other, the more they burst into flames. And you're jumping from building to building, climbing, you know, seven-story towers to leap off of that and fight a robot and make it explode. And, you know, I can't do it justice. Every time I try and talk about Titanfall 2, I just can't do it justice. It is, people just look at it and say, oh, it's like Call of Duty. And yeah, I guess it is. You know, it is a... It is a, uh, you know, use the left stick to aim down the sights and shoot with the right stick and, uh, you know, click on the left stick to sprint, but... And, and of course, you know, even Call of Duty has parkour now, but... Every time I walked away from a match in Titanfall 2, it wasn't just like the first match. There was always differences. I, I, like, I can never be like, oh yeah, that's usually where people camp out. No, because the map design is brilliant. So you can't just camp out there because people will know about it. Oh man, that's, you know... Usually a robot will just stand right there and just blast everybody. No way, because robots, even in their giant, you know, suits, are always vulnerable. If it's on a bridge or something, then maybe the humans are going to swing underneath the bridge and they're going to jump on top of them and they're going to destroy their uh, battery. There are so many different ways to overcome the odds in that game. It never feels unbalanced. And that's remarkable to say for a game that has so many options. So, you know, Titanfall 2 is just incredible. Oh, there you go. Anyway, Jimski. Thank you 
for the email. Remember, pressurecast at gmail.com, 954-947-7377, at VGA Dumb on Twitter, and so many other resources. I hope that answered your question. It's been about 35 minutes, so I think I got you covered. Now that we got that out of the way, I think it is time to get on the train. Chug 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 chug. Here comes the train. Tooty toot toot. Beep, beep. That's right, it's time for the Hype Train. Feel the PR vibrations as we barrel towards Video Game Satisfaction Station on the Hype Train. This is where we talk about all those upcoming video games and events to get you hyped up to spend your money and become a video game guru. We are going to be starting off with some major PlayStation news, a huge development in PlayStation that might seem a little low-key. A lot of people didn't take it as seriously as others. Someone who did take it seriously, though, is Keon, because he called in at 954-947-7377. Uh, do me a favor, Keon. Take it away. Hey, what's going on, Colin? I guess you're, you're already aware of it. Uh, that, you know, the PlayStation Now service is actually going to be expanding its library into the PlayStation side of things. Essentially, PC players will have the best of both worlds. They'll actually be able to play certain Xbox One games on the PC as well as certain PlayStation 4 games on the PC. But my question to you, Colin, is how soon, in your opinion, do you think we'll see games like Uncharted 4 on the service or Horizon Zero Dawn on the service or even Gravity Rush? Just different that Sony has in their back pocket. Thanks a lot and have a go. Bye-bye. Keon, thank you for the voicemail. Excellent voicemail. As always, Keon, asking the hard-hitting questions. PlayStation Now is on PC, and it will now have PlayStation 4 games. Wow. Let's get into some of these details, though. Uh, Sony's cloud streaming service, PlayStation Now, will soon introduce PlayStation 4 games into its library. Currently, PlayStation Now features 483 PlayStation 3 titles that can be streamed to either the PlayStation 4 console or personal computers. No specific titles were mentioned, though the announcement blog does mention a beta test will begin in the next few weeks. I guess what I would like to talk about first is that uh, about a month ago, Sony announced that they would no longer allow uh, or no longer provide the PlayStation Now service on their Bravia television sets or any Samsung television sets. It wouldn't be available on the Vita. It wouldn't be available on, uh, you know, PlayStation 3. This is probably the reason because they wanted to introduce more value to the service, but if you're offering PlayStation 4 games on a PlayStation 3, then what's the point of buying a PlayStation 3? And believe me, they want you to spend that money on that hardware. So how big of a deal is this? How is this going to affect, uh, you know, the PC on, or how is this going to affect the PlayStation 4 overall? And how is it going to affect PlayStation now? If I'm being honest, I think it will affect it very little. I think it will get more people to actually try out the service because finally they can be like, oh, there's a PS4 game I haven't tried yet. I'll, I'll give that one a go. And besides that, there is a seven day free trial. So I do recommend anyone that, you know, has the chance to check it out. It is a fairly good service last time I used it. But this is all about building that catalog. This is all about them uh, giving you value to PlayStation. It had to add PlayStation 4 games at some point. I mean, the service has been around for what, like uh, two years almost? I want to say somewhere around there. And, you know, having the opportunity to play, I don't even know, uh, Cabela's hunting whatever from 2008, not that enticing. You've got to give them something that is more modern. 
Uh, because that's where this is all going. Sooner or later, Sony would like, I, I imagine, to, instead of selling you discs and all that, have you subscribe to a streaming service and, and purchase games that you stream to your household. We're not talking about next generation, we're talking about decades down the line. That is probably what they would like to do. But Keon does mention, like, hey, are, are we going to get Uncharted 4? Is that going to be a game we're going to get? I don't think so. Here are the games that I've actually written out. Here are the games that I believe will be available soon on PlayStation Now that are on the PlayStation 4. Uh, first off, Infamous Second Son. This is a game from 2014. It is the fourth game in the Infamous series. So far, Infamous 1, 2, and Festival of Blood, which I guess is, you know, it's technically it's DLC, are available on PlayStation Now. No one's really picking up, you know, Infamous Second Son anymore. Maybe they are because they got a PlayStation 4 Pro and they want to check out HDR and 4K and all that jazz, but I don't really, mm -mm, I don't really think so. Uh, I'm sure we'll also get Infamous First Light on there. Uh, this, this is actually a really good superhero open world game. Uh, up next, I'm thinking we're going to get Dirt Rally by Codemasters. Once again, it's about a three-year-old game. Uh, Codemasters has provided at least four or five games already from the PlayStation 3 library onto PlayStation Now. Seems like a likely candidate. Uh, the Order 1886, I think, will definitely make an early appearance on PlayStation Now. It's a very short game. Didn't get much buzz. People were slightly unhappy with it. I enjoyed the game, even though I was equally frustrated by just the way they handled their story. They just totally dropped the ball at the last second. It's it's really unfortunate. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a sequel to The Order 1886 because Sony thinks long-term for all of their franchises, even if nobody's asking for it. I mean, for fuck's sake, how many Loco Roco games do we get? Love that series. Can't imagine they sold tremendously well. So probably Order 1886. Uh, besides that, it looks gorgeous, you know. Uh, up next, Killzone Shadowfall. Why? Because they already have all the other Killzone games, and I don't think they're going to be doing anything with uh, the Killzone franchise anytime soon, especially because Gorilla is now busy working on, uh, you know, DLC for Horizon Zero Dawn, and that franchise is just... It's going like gangbusters right now. Why even try to revisit Killzone at this point? Like, let it lie. Uh, so that's probably what's going to happen. Uh, you know, side note, I would be really pleased if we saw some Vita games on PlayStation now in the near future because, of course, there was that Killzone Mercenary game that was actually quite good. Uh, up next, Knack. Because, of course, you want Knack on PlayStation Plus, you're never going to get it. Uh, you know, it's Mark Cerny's quirky platformer from the PlayStation 4 launch. will probably never be added to PlayStation now, or at least not for many years to come. Put it on PlayStation Now, because that is an identifiable Sony franchise, for better or worse. And we do have a sequel coming up. Uh, God of War 3 Remastered, I think, is going to be a game that's going to be on the service. They already have God of War 3 on there, but I'm willing to bet that God of War 3 Remastered will just be available. Because Sony just... They do that sometimes. They make these weird decisions. That would not surprise me in the slightest. And besides that, you know, maybe they'll substitute that over God of War 3. Just have God of War Remastered. It's a streaming service. Who cares what console it was on? Remastered looks better. You know, slightly better. It looks better. Uh, Assassin's Creed Unity, I would estimate, would be on there. I don't think Ubisoft is going to have, uh, you know, 2015's Assassin's Creed Syndicate on the service, but Unity from 2014 makes a lot of sense. It's a very pretty game. Uh, I don't really know if anyone would enjoy playing it, but I'm sure Ubisoft wants to have a hand in this because they have to have a hand in everything, and already there are a number of Assassin's Creed titles on there. Uh, up next uh, in uh, Shadow of the Beast, the coolly received... Remake of the classic PC game. I want to make this clear. I'm not trying to disappoint you. I'm just trying to be realistic. What does Sony own? What can they put on the service? What's actually going to be there? 
it's not always gonna be great games, and I think uh, Shadow of the Beast will probably end up on there because nobody bought that game. <laughs> because it was terrible. <laughs> and uh, lastly, I, I, I do want to agree with Keon there. Uh, maybe not Gravity Rush 2, but I do believe Gravity Rush Remastered will absolutely be on that service. Absolutely. Uh, not just to increase sales of, of, of Gravity Rush 2, but just to add to the overall diversity of what you see on the PlayStation Now service. That is my guess. Uh, you know, that is what you can expect. So why not Uncharted 4? Why not some of the bigger titles? Uh, why not Bloodborne? Which I'm sure a lot of PC players would love if Bloodborne came to uh, PlayStation now, even though it wouldn't be perfect. Uh, they would still prefer not to spend, you know, $300, $400 on a brand new console. Well, the reason is that they want them to still buy the console. This is sort of an ambassador program to be like, hey, PC users, uh, check this out. PS4, we got some pretty good exclusives, don't we? Oh, those ones that you really want over there? Mm, you know, we just don't think we're going to bring them over. Why don't you pick up a PS4 instead? Now, does that mean they're never going to come to PlayStation now? No, I'm not saying that. I'm sure Uncharted will show up eventually if the service continues for four years or five years. But I just wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it because there's... They still want to sell hardware. This is not meant to replace the PlayStation 4 for PC users. There's money on the table. There are games that are no longer making money. Put it together. Get those PC users invested. And this is, I agree with you, Keon, this is a humongous deal. Because this is, like I said, becoming an ambassador program to people that prefer to use Steam and Origin and, and Uplay. Okay, maybe no one prefers to use Uplay or Origin, but Steam users. And it's making that bid saying, you know what? You've been skeptical for a while. Maybe you just want to check out a couple of these games. You heard good things about Gravity Rush. Try it out for yourself. And that increases the odds. They'll just pick up a PS4 because they want to reduce latency. I messed up on that word. But anyway, Keon, thank you for the voicemail. Let's move on to the next story. Toot toot. Uh, the upcoming PlayStation Plus free lineup for the month of April will not be confirmed until next week at least, but we do have our first confirmed title. Sony San Diego's Drawn to Death will be available on April 4th for $20 or free for PlayStation Plus users. Uh, director David Jaffe originally announced the title way back in December of 2014 at the very first PlayStation experience, and it did have a lengthy public beta period. Drawn to Death is a third-person multiplayer-focused shooter which takes place inside of a high school student's notebook. All right, I gotta admit, I'm kind of looking forward to this because... Uh, and also, I think it's a really smart move because uh, I would never buy Drawn to Death. It looks really interesting, uh, but having it be for free, I think that's a great way to view because they've spent a lot of years on this project, and it, it would be nice for them to sort of have a goodwill gesture to all the people that complain on the PlayStation Plus lineup. Why don't we get any new games? Why are you always giving us these old games? Well, that's because it's, it's more affordable for Sony to do that. I did play a little bit of Drawn to Death. Uh, I want to say about, uh, I don't know. 10 months ago, 11 months ago, sometime last year, I wasn't really blown away by it. It felt kind of dated and odd. It was a third-person multiplayer shooter, and none of it really connected. There wasn't any sort of impact to the weapons, and it was, it was, it was a confusing game. And I, I think in some ways, the way that it feels dated might actually help it, because it's unlike anything else in the market currently, uh, unless you're playing PlayStation 3 games on PlayStation Network. But I will say the art style is incredible. It all takes place, like I said, inside that notebook. There's actual lines from the notebook, and all the characters have that hard, you know, black and blue ballpoint pen, teenager scribbled characters, you know, scribbled hair, scribbled hands that are kind of squarish. I think from a visual standpoint, 
it's remarkable, and uh, that's a good enough reason just to check it out. Anyway, moving on, toot toot. Lastly, in PlayStation news, the Sony-owned studio Wild Factory recently re <laughs> recently revealed it's working on a I mispronounced a word. I'm sorry. Wild Factory recently revealed it's working on a new VR title that might never be released on PlayStation VR. Gold Rush VR is a four-player room-scale experience where users mine for precious metals, and it will apparently be using the HTC Five headset in addition to uh, backpacks. No release date was given through the demo, um, though the demos were available at last week's South by Southwest Festival. Uh, I know some people saw this news and thought it was rather strange that Sony is developing a VR game that will not be on PlayStation VR, and even some people that took that as a sign that Sony is uh, perhaps... Um, how do I even phrase this? Maybe they, they, they're not confident in PlayStation VR or its success, and they're trying to look elsewhere. But I think it's the, the complete opposite. I think this shows that Sony's more into VR than they were before because they're looking at the future of this technology, which is changing every single day. I mean, two years ago, it's like, here's some headsets. Oh, boy, look at me. Uh, oh, room scale, that's a new thing. Oh, wow. And then by next year, it's like, oh, we have backpacks and we have wireless VR headsets. It changes every single month. The technology is rapidly expanding. And when you have something like... PlayStation VR, which is tied to a console, and consoles are, you know, kind of stagnant uh, experiences. They sit on a shelf for five to six years. I'm sure that's how PlayStation VR is going to be. They need to have teams within PlayStation working on, on sort of future-proofing their VR uh, uh, division. And because PlayStation VR can't do it, they need to go elsewhere. They need to go the HTC Vive. I mean, there's a reason it's not coming to Oculus. They want to focus on room scale and multiplayer. And the only way to do that right now is HTC Vive. So, you know, when they do release that room scale VR, when they do release uh, something that's wireless or something that's, uh, you know, more similar to the highest tech in VR, they already have a team that knows how to make that. They don't have to start from the ground anymore. And to be honest, from what I saw in this game, it was really cool. Because there was four people with headsets standing around, and they were looking at each other, and they all looked like miners, and they were chiseling away things with the uh, Vive controllers. It was awesome. Toot toot. Moving on to Xbox news, we have four new additions to the backwards compatibility program for the Xbox One. They are the following. Luxar 2, Madballs in Babo, Invasion, Poker Smash, and Street Fighter 4. I'm a little perplexed by these uh, these games right here. I mean, I understand most of them, but Street Fighter 4? Really? Just Street Fighter 4? I was always under the assumption that when they launched Street Fighter 4 for backwards compatibility, it would be in conjunction with, you know, maybe Super Street Fighter or, you know, the latest rendition. Now, there were some characters that were DLC, I want to say. Maybe I'm getting that wrong. But why would you ever want to go back to the original vanilla 2008? Or was it, no, it was 2009 Street Fighter 4. Since that incarnation, they have balanced the hell out of a lot of those characters. And it's just... The best Street Fighter 4 is the newest Street Fighter 4. I don't know why you'd want to go back and play this old version. You know, and maybe it's just me. And don't get me wrong, I loved Street Fighter 4 when it came out. I love that game, but it's undeniable. They have balanced the game, they have introduced new characters. Why would you go back? Why would you go back? Why would you go back? Toot toot. 
Uh, we have plenty of Nintendo news to talk about in the chart park, but we're only making one stop in the hype train. Uh, a couple of international retailers have listed physical versions of Telltale's Guardians of the Galaxy and Batman the Telltale series for the Nintendo Switch console. Neither website included an expected release date, and Telltale has yet to confirm or deny these possible leaks. This all makes a lot of sense to me because, come on, it's Telltale Games. They take the same title, release it on the PlayStation 4, they release it on the PC, they release it on the Xbox One. Hell, they even release things like Minecraft on the Wii U, and then they release it on the phone, and then they release it on the tablet. They release it on damn near everything. Why wouldn't they launch uh, a game on, on, on Nintendo Switch? It's using a mobile processor, they totally understand how that works. I mean, isn't it even available on the Nvidia Shield? Telltale puts their games out everywhere. There is no reason whatsoever this shouldn't happen. Now, whether or not they're actually going to do a physical version, I don't know. I have no idea. I would like to have a physical version of those games, but uh, only in, after the games have launched. I don't want to have to download additional space onto my Nintendo Switch. Huh, so actually, now that I say that out loud, I, I would actually really appreciate if they waited until the series was done and then released on the Switch on a cartridge. It'd be preferable because, you know, three gigabytes... An episode when you only have 26 gigabytes of space on your console doesn't add up to much for me. Moving on. Toot toot. Uh, Capcom has announced they'll soon re-release their classic Disney NES titles. The compilation titled the Disney Afternoon Collection will include DuckTales 1 and 2, Chippendale 1 and 2, Tailspin, and Darkwing Duck. All games will be presented in their original 4x3 ratio and include extra modes such as Bosch Rush, Time Trial, and Leaderboards, as well as a special rewind feature where players are going to be able to reverse time in case they make a mistake or accidentally jump into a pit. Uh, the Disney Afternoon Collection will be available for $20 on April 18th for the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. There's a lot to talk about this, but before we do, for years I have been saying we need a term for 4x3 ratio when it comes to video games. And I've, I've suggested for years that it be called standard letterboxing. Please make this an industry standard. It's a great name. You don't even need to credit me. It's just a really great name. Standard letterboxing. Come on. I have to say, this is a amazing moment in a lot of ways. Because if you are a fan of retro games and you want to play it on your, you know, older games on your latest console, you will get something. You will find games like, um, oh, they just released that Blaster Master on, uh, on the Switch. I mean, it's a remake. That's actually not a re-release. Well, they re-released all those Neo Geo games on the Nintendo Switch. You can, you can play those there. But when it comes to licensed games, that's a whole other ball of wax. It's incredibly difficult to get the rights back and have all parties come back together. But fortunately, Disney is such a large corporation, they still own the rights to all of their stuff. And Capcom, they still own the rights to all those NES games. And so they can just come together and be like, oh yeah, let's let's just re-release all these old Disney games. And you should want to play this, because these are fantastic. Even if you stripped away all of the recognizable franchises, DuckTales is an amazing platformer. Uh, Tailspin is a surprisingly friendly shooter. Uh, Darkwing Duck is basically a lost Mega Man title. And Chippendale... One and two, they're really good fun. I remember me and Justin played it for uh, his short-lived YouTube series, and it's just a ridiculous platformer where you pick up objects and throw them at enemies, and you can even pick up your friend and, and throw him. They're so stupid. I love it. $20, that's a great deal. Though I am hopeful that the emulation for this project is just as good as uh, some of the other things they've done, like the Mega Man Collection. 
or uh, I guess to be more fair, I guess it'd be like Final Fight on, on Xbox 360 and uh, PlayStation 3. Anyway, moving on. A toot. Toot. Despite a UN Council recommendation to the contrary, Sonic the Hedgehog will make his return later this year. Uh, following last fall's debut trailer, the first footage of the newly named Sonic Forces was revealed last week. In the video, Sonic is seen dashing through a blockade of robots and launching into the sky through an explosive war zone. Sonic Forces is, is expected to arrive sometime this fall. In related news, the 2D Sonic Mania has seen a slight delay. Originally planned for this spring, it will now release later this summer. Sonic Mania is a remix of classic Sonic stages as well as some new and is being overseen by the celebrated programmer Christian Whitehead. Woo! So they put out this video of 30 seconds of Sonic the Hedgehog running around! Running around! There you go, Sonic! Look at Sonic! And that was it. That was the whole trailer. Just Sonic running around! And people were like, oh, that looks better than I expected. Uh, maybe Sonic Forces might turn out to be good after all. Why? Why would you think that? That game is coming out this fall, right? I would hope, I would hope they have 30 seconds of footage to put together to make you think, oh, that looks interesting. That looks alright. And I am no just general Sonic hater. I had my time with Sonic the Hedgehog. I put Sonic 3 as one of my favorite games of all time. I love Sonic 3. And I, I like Sonic 2 a lot too. Don't really like Sonic 1 as much. Sonic and Knuckles, not bad. I like Sonic games. But what in the past 20 years has given you any idea that this will be a good game? Seriously, what? What in the world? Because well, uh, Sonic Adventure was so good? Go back and play those games. It's not aging bad. It was always bad. Sonic Adventure 2, same thing. You know, the Werehog bullshit, same thing. The the 2006 Sonic, same thing. The Secret Rings, the, the Black Knight, the... All of these games. All of them. Sonic Boom? Uh, uh, Sonic Heroes? Um, God, they're all terrible. They're all terrible. Like, the best games. The best games. The people that go, oh man, Sonic Generation is like the best game in that series. It's like, great, that's like a 6.57 out of 10. This is what we're fighting for to, to revive this, this dead mascot? I mean, for fuck's sake. Put him on the t-shirts. Get the merchandise out there. Have the cartoon show. Stay out of video games. There is no reason to make a Sonic video game. They don't make money generally anymore. Don't bother. Just keep re-releasing Sonic CD. Don't need new Sonic games. And then take that team and be like, okay, let's make something new. Let's actually make some fucking money here. Because <laughs> I don't know. And, and and I know some people will say, what are you talking about? Sonic has had good games. They had uh, the Sonic Advance series on the Game Boy Advance. We're talking about the Game Boy Advance? That's the last time Sonic was good? <laughs> Back when we had standard definition televisions and, and we had to put physical batteries into our handhelds, that's when Sonic was good? Nah. You gotta relax. Let Sonic go. Before he kills us all. Toot toot. And lastly, the popular Nintendo GameCube and Wii emulator, Dolphin, has reached a new technical milestone. By using the program, users are now able to connect directly to the eShop and purchase games. This marks the first time a console emulator has the ability to connect to an official marketplace. There's really nothing to say about this new story except, God damn, that's amazing. Congratulations, Dolphin Programmers. I know it's not perfect, but you deserve a lot of credit. Credit. That's remarkable. Now, if you could create an emulated version of that marketplace, I'll really be blown away. 
Anyway, toot toot, here are the games that are going to be out this week on Tuesday. Mass Effect Andromeda will be out on the Xbox One, PC, and PlayStation 4. I'll be doing a review of that, eh, not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday. Uh, Troll and I will be available on the Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and PC. Tokenin 2 will be available on the PlayStation 4, Vita, and PC. Uh, Tohu Jensu Wanderer will be available for the PlayStation 4. Uh, Enema... Gate of Memories Beyond Fantasy Edition will be available on the PlayStation 4. On Thursday, Dreamfall Chapters will be available on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. And on Friday, Mario Sports Superstars will be available on the 3DS and Zero Escape the Nonary Games for PlayStation 4 and Vita. And if you do get a chance to check out Mass Effect, please do not try to harass someone that was on the development team, you fucking monsters. Boop, boop. That's going to do it for the hype train. This show's running a little bit longer than usual, so now we're just going to cut right to the chase. I know a place that's always warm with the glow of cold, hard cash. That's right, it's time for... The Chart Park, the land where money grows on trees. Yes, the Chart Park. This is the part of the show where we talk about the legal business and financial news in the video game industry. And we are starting it off with some major Nintendo Switch news. Uh, we have two stories. We're going to try and combine them together. So sit tight right there. Uh, the sales analyst group Superdata has released a report estimating the first week of sales for the new Nintendo Switch console. And it is very good news for Nintendo. According to their research, the Switch sold through 1.5 million units between March 3rd and March 10th. Japan purchased 360,000 units, with Europe selling through 195,000 Nintendo Switches. Nintendo, or I'm sorry, not Nintendo, North American territories account for the bulk sales with over 500,000 Nintendo Switches being sold, with the remaining 450,000 units being purchased in other territories. Nintendo had previously stayed their first month sales goal would be in the range of 2 million Nintendo Switches. Now let's go on to the next story. It appears Nintendo might be drastically ramping up its production for the Nintendo Switch. According to the Wall Street Journal, Nintendo originally planned to produce 8 million consoles uh, by the end of the month, but now they have ramped that up to 16 million. This news has not been confirmed by Nintendo, though the Wall Street Journal is already citing unnamed sources close to the matter. Whew. Now look. I know I've said this in the past, but the early first month sales of a console are not really a good indication of long-term success. First and foremost example would be the Sega Dreamcast, which broke all sorts of sales records in North America and Japan. More on that later. But Nintendo is making the right move here. They've seen that people really want Nintendo Switch, and instead of trying to do that artificial demand thing, they're just saying, fuck it, get as many units out there as possible, if the news is true. But even if it's not true, 8 million units by the end of the month, that's awesome. And it's not like they're going to ship them all out at once. They will do it periodically, and that way they can sort of keep up with demand. So why exactly did I bring up the Sega Dreamcast earlier? Well, the thing about the Sega Dreamcast is, when it launched in 1999, uh, or I guess 1998 over in Japan, and then 1999 in North America, they had an issue in late 1998 where they actually ran out of very specific chipset. And because they didn't have that chipset, they couldn't ship Dreamcast to Japanese retailers. So people were like, oh man, come on, give me a Dreamcast. I really want one. Oh, you don't have one? Damn. Well, I guess I'll just wait and wait. And hey, what's that over there? The PlayStation 2? <laughs> Forget about that Dreamcast. I'll just get me one of them. 
even when the Dreamcast was hot, even when it could have been a huge success, it faltered because it couldn't keep up with demand. That is exactly what Nintendo needs to do right here, because let's face facts, it's no longer about waiting for a, a PlayStation. It could be anything. It could be a cell phone. It could be uh, an upgrade to a computer. It could be a part for your car, a new pair of headphones. There are so many different aspects to technology now for entertainment purposes. Nintendo needs to compete with that. And if they give people too much time waiting on the Nintendo Switch, they might stop and think, huh, I want to play Zelda, and um, I guess nothing else on the console. Hmm. Why would I buy a Nintendo Switch? Nintendo cannot risk that. They cannot give people time to think. So ramping up production, shipping out more units, and having uh, that demand satisfied immediately is the right way to go. Because if they have too much time to think, they'll go, wow. Why would I want this? Why would I care about this? I'll just wait for maybe December. And Nintendo cannot afford that. They want to have good quarterly reports. Just saying. Let's move on to more Nintendo news. Uh, as one... Well, actually, this is not Nintendo news. I screwed up. As one console rises, another one sets. And no, we're not talking about the Wii U. Gim... I never even know how to say the name of this website. Gimatsu? Well, let's go with that. Is reporting Sony will soon end production of the PlayStation 3 line of consoles. According to the official Japanese PlayStation website, uh, quote, shipments are scheduled to end soon, end quote. Uh, this could account for Japanese retail units only, though historically, this means the end of manufacturing for all territories. The PlayStation 3 was originally released in the fall of 2006, and after a rocky start, went on to sell 83.8 million units, nearly matching its closest HD competitor, the Xbox 360. You know, we could do a whole show about the PlayStation 3, but, you know, maybe we will, but it's still so fresh and new, there's not a whole lot to say. You have to give credit to Sony, though. Back when they announced the PlayStation 3 back in 2005, they said, we have big plans for this system. We're going to give it a 10-year life cycle. And the people laughed. Ho, ho, ho. You're going to have 10 years with the PlayStation 3. Huh, never. Well, guess what? Came out in 2006. It's 2017. And they're just starting to slow down production now. And we still have games coming out on the system. Persona 5 will be launching on the PlayStation 3 two weeks from now? That's amazing! There are still quality titles coming. Now, not as frequently as when it was in its heyday, but the PlayStation 3, it survived much longer than many anticipated. Some people even said there would be a PlayStation 4 by 2010 just to make up for how bad the PlayStation 3 had done. Not necessarily. It did great, and it really did a lot to influence uh, the current structure of video games and how everything works here now. I mean, a lot of people thought that you know, Blu-rays wouldn't really take off, Sony was forcing it down their throats, but no, we all use Blu-rays now. Well, except for Nintendo. They're doing cartridges. Or, I guess, SD cards. Can't account for taste. Moving on, next week, the long-awaited Japanese role-playing game Persona 5 will finally hit North American shores. But it appears, due to a classification error, some special editions might be in jeopardy. Last week, a number of Amazon users' orders were canceled for the Take Your Heart Premium Edition of Persona 5 for the PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4. In the notification email, Amazon cited the included steelbook case as, quote, dangerous goods, end quote, and the reason for the cancellation. Speaking with Polygon, an Atlas representative downplayed the incident as an accident. 
Quote, After waiting patiently during the day, we've received word and can confirm to you what we've always known. There's nothing defective or dangerous about our product. While there have been cancellations, we understand that only a tiny number of Amazon sales have been affected. No mass cancellations on of the premium and steelbook editions have occurred. End quote. Uh, the issue has been resolved, apparently, though some users report their orders were never restored. This is the worst possible game for this to happen to. I don't know if you know much about Persona, but let me tell you something. It is a Japanese role-playing game. And, well, I guess you probably knew that, but fans of Persona don't just stop with the games. They want the t-shirt. They want the steelbook. They want the plushie. They want the anime. They want tattoos all over their face with their favorite characters from Persona. Persona fans are absolutely hardcore, and so when they had the option, they immediately snatched up that special edition. And now two weeks before it comes out, after waiting years for Persona 5, it's getting cancelled? Their order got cancelled? And now it's sold out on Amazon? I really hope, <laughs> I really hope Amazon knows what they've gotten themselves into. They need to have a strong make good for those people affected, because they will never forget this. They will never forget this, and they will maybe stop using Amazon altogether. Sounds ridiculous? Talk to a Persona fan sometime. You'll see. Moving on, Guerrilla Games' new IP, Horizon Zero Dawn, is off to a great start. Sony has announced sales of 2.6 million copies within the first two weeks. Though Horizon Zero Dawn didn't reach the top 10 best-selling games of February, it was released on the final day of that month. This is just a, a number story, just saying, wow, 2.6 million. I, I really think this says a lot about what this generation needs, though. Uh, which is compelling exclusives, which Sony seems to be delivering on a weekly basis at this point, as well as uh, new IP, new ideas. Something that's really, you know, made me a little worried is how this generation is still relying on the franchises of last generation. This week, we're going to have Mass Effect Andromeda come out, and I'm really curious to see what those numbers are going to be. You know, uh, I'm, maybe the old fans will still arrive, and they'll still pick up a copy and, and, and really enjoy it, or maybe they'll hate it, but either way, uh, Electronic Arts has their money. But what about new people, people that didn't play the other Mass Effects? No matter how much they say, oh, you don't need to play the other ones, in the back of their head, they're going, ah, this is a story-based game. I don't know the story. Maybe they tried to play one of the Mass Effect games, and it didn't really work out for them. And they're just not as entitled to pick up a copy of a new entry in the franchise. And it's the same thing with, you know, Halo, or, or even Call of Duty, or, many, or, or Assassin's Creed. These franchises are from last gen, and that's great. They were very impactful when they were released, but... Now we're in a new generation, and not to mention that last generation was the longest mainstream generation we've ever had since, I, I don't even know, I guess technically the Atari 2600. This generation needs an identity. They need characters that new audiences can latch on to, otherwise it's all going to get stale. I'm talking about the entire industry just might feel stale, so you need to really freshen up things. And uh, I'm really glad to see Horizon Zero Dawn. I think it is evidence that people are ready for, for new characters, new worlds, and new stories instead of just the follow-up. And and you know, it's funny, we're not really seeing that that uh, the, the trend that we've seen in prior generations where sequels do better than the original. That's not happening anymore. If you actually look at the numbers of what are the best-selling games, of course there will still be sequels on there, but in general, Things like, um, you know, Dishonored 2, Titanfall 2, other sequels didn't, you know, have as much momentum as their first game. So, I don't know. I hope we see some new stuff, like maybe a game where, 
<sighs> you play as a big old knife. Run around, stab people. That's the kind of game I'd make. Moving on, it's official, Outlast 2 is banned in the Outback. The Australian Classifications Board has refused to classify next month's, out, next month's Outlast 2, though the board has hinted it would possibly reverse its decision if certain depictions of sexual violence were removed. Uh, Australia has a long history of banning video games dating all the way back to the mid-1990s with titles like Phantasmagoria, and the original Postal. Uh, some games, such as Left 4 Dead 2, have been edited by their developers to uh, receive approval, while other games like Hotline Miami 2 didn't bother and have never been released in Australia. Uh, any imported copies sold in Australia can result in a maximum punishment of $275,000 and up to 10 years in jail. They're really serious about this. So why did I put this story in here? I mean, after all, they can just go in and edit out certain things and release Outlast 2. Well, I wanted to put it in here because I want to talk a little bit about censorship. Oh, censorship. It seems like everywhere we look these days, there's censorship. But there's really not, especially when it comes to video games. Uh, this happens a lot, especially when it comes to games that are from Japan that have come over to America. Maybe they have some really weird storylines, some revealing clothes on a 13-year-old, and the publisher and developer go to extra steps to rectify that before releasing it into Western territories. And people look at that as censorship. You're censoring it. But they can't. They literally cannot censor it, because censorship comes from a government, not a corporation. It's important to understand that. If you're working at, you know, Jimmy John's, and you take a piece of bread and be like, D Fuck everything! <laughs> I don't know why th that correlates, but whatever. You can't say, fuck you, fuck you, fuck everybody, and they fire you, and you'd be like, what, Why, how can you fire me? It's my First Amendment right, you're censoring me. No, they're not. It's a corporation. Governments censure, censor, and it's very important to understand the difference because when censorship does occur in your country, especially when it comes to art, that is clause for concern. But when a corporation does it, that's just editing. This is a product they're trying to sell. Uh, I mean, they, they are localizing, uh, you know, games for that territory. Is it an overreaction by, you know, some of these publishers? Sometimes it is. Is it an overreaction from Australia? I would say absolutely. I mean, these games, you know, Hotline Miami 2, it's, it's pixels, for fuck's sake. Relax. Uh, you might object to what it, it's saying in the game, but who really cares? But if a company decides to do it, I don't really get bent out of shape. Because they're trying to make their, their, uh, their IP and their game more palatable to the general audience. And there's nothing wrong with that. Even if you believe in artistic freedom and all those types of things. Like, do you really need to see the 13-year-old the girl's, you know, body? I don't. I don't want to, but if they get rid of it, I'm like, all right, cool. I'll check out this game. And no, not just changing their age for localization is going to work for me. That girl is 12. She is not 21. I know better. Anyway, moving on. Oh, man, you can really take that clip out of context, can't you? <laughs> all right. On to business news. Kevin Berner, the CEO of Telltale Games, is stepping down after more than two years on the job. Berner originally took over for Dan Connors in January of 2015. Now Connors will resume his old role. Though Berner plans to stay on the company's board for the time being, his resignation includes his departure from Telltale Games. Berner and Connors were both founders of the company when it opened way back in 2005. Seems like a pretty straightforward story. Guy was uh, the CEO, he stepped down, someone else stepped up, and now he's stepping down, so the old guy is stepping back up. Whatever, it's business. But no, 
There's a lot of weird questions about this. The reason I bring it up is because Burner actually released a statement uh, when, he, when he announced he was resigning, saying, quote, The time has come to pass the reins to someone that can better drive Telltale to the next level and realize all the potential that is here. That's pretty nice of him. Realize the potential. Someone else can do the job. Better than he can. That's what he's saying. Well, okay, I'll admit it. There are things about Telltale that really annoy me. I don't understand why they don't update their engine, which is creaking every step of the way and just horrible frame rates and it looks awful. I wish Telltale would do something and get a brand new engine. But if you're talking about growing the company, Burner is the guy that signed the deal with Disney and Marvel Comics. Who else could they go to? Who is bigger than Disney and Marvel Comics when it comes to entertainment? Nobody. This little tiny, tiny company called Telltale that makes these little adventure games are working with Disney. And he got that deal going. So who better to do that? It's just weird that after two years, he's just like, oh no, I'm going to leave and I'm leaving the company and the old CEO is back. And there's no word on whether or not that's temporary or if that's permanent. It's just odd and icky. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading into this too much, but mm, whatever. Moving on, speaking of departures, J.P. Clemis has announced he's left Platinum Games. Clemis had a hand in many Platinum titles, including Bayonetta, Mad World, Anarchy Reigns, and Vanquish. His exit closely follows the cancellation of X the Xbox One Scalebound, which he was uh, tied on as a producer. In a statement, Clemens explained his departure, saying, uh, quote, Embracing new challenges is part of my DNA, and after almost 10 years of working with the team, more with Capcom slash Clover, because he used to work there, he worked for Platinum longer, I guess, uh, it is time to move on to new challenges, and I'm excited to share soon. I'll be forever grateful to all the people who have touched this journey because they shaped who I am. It's always a shame to see somebody like him leave a developer, because even if he only had a minor role in, in many, many titles, he still had an impact on the overall business culture that is Platinum Games. And him leaving, even if he wasn't sitting there writing a script or, or designing characters or, uh, you know, always doing voice work, which he used to do voice work in some of Platinum Games when they would bring them over to America, or even the localization, uh, it's still an impact to the company. There is a culture to every publisher, to every developer that is based off of the people. So this will affect Platinum Games. Will we even notice it? Maybe not, but it'll be different. Okay, moving on to legal news. Blizzard Entertainment is once again taking boss land hacks to court. Uh, the German bot maker has been accused of copyright infringement resulting in millions of lost sales. Blizzard filed a lawsuit against boss land last summer in California, though boss land refused to answer after they failed to have the case dismissed, citing a overreach of jurisdiction. The new lawsuit has been filed in Bosland's home country of Germany, where Blizzard is seeking... Let me see. How much are they seeking here? It's not that much. It's really weird. They, they're only seeking $8,563,600, which breaks down to $200 per infraction. So they've been infracting uh, here and there. Uh, we do have a quote from Blizzard, which I'm going to skim through just a little bit here. So uh, it, it was actually listed on the filing. Quote, Bossline's decision to default is a calculated and bad faith tactic designed to shield its unlawful conduct from the reach of the United States law. By defaulting, Bossline apparently hopes to block Blizzard from taking any discovery into its conduct, thereby concealing from Blizzard the scope of its unlawful conduct, the amount of revenue it has received from Bossline hacks, 
and the whereabouts of its assets. Bossland also hopes that by hiding this information, it may avoid a monetary judgment or rendering of any judgment that may be entered against it and either in and either unenforceable in the courts of Germany or uncollectible. Thus, Bossland hopes it will be able to continue its conduct business as usual and that Blizzard will be unavailable to avail itself of the relief to which it is entitled. I like who wrote that, that's great. Uh, Bossland has provided a number of cheats and bots for popular Blizzard titles including World of Warcraft, Hearthstone, and the most recent title, Overwatch. There is virtually no chance of Bossland getting away with this, and it is kind of a fascinating story. You might be saying, uh, you know, they mentioned lost revenue. Are they really losing $200 every time they have a hack or a bot or whatever in a Blizzard game? Uh, maybe. Well, actually, definitely not. That is just not possible that they're losing $200. How do they even calculate that? But if you're somebody that's checking out a Blizzard game and maybe you're enjoying it and then suddenly you just get wiped out because someone is cheating and using bots, which, by the way, that's what Botsline does. They sell the bots to other users uh, just to fuck over other people in games so that they can rank up faster. That would really piss you off. You know, once you have someone cheating, it ruins the whole game. The whole illusion of what's happening here of skill is besting others is gone and maybe you won't play the game anymore which means you won't buy the dlc which means maybe you won't play the mobile card game which means you might not check out the next blizzard game because oh, there's always bots doing stuff so it's really important for blizzard to crack down on them and more importantly the 200 dollars uh per infraction and the over 8.5 million dollars is a sign to other would-be bot makers like hey try something we will go to your home country and we will sue the shit out of you there's no way that blizzard doesn't win this they have amazing lawyers. And bye-bye, Bossland. You're lucky they're only going after your money. Moving on, the NPD has released the list of the top 10 best-selling games in North America for the month of February. We're going to go right through the list. Number 10 was Overwatch, though it's worth noting that this does not include digital sales for Overwatch. Uh, number 9 was Neo, yet again, another game that did not include digital sales. Uh, the rest of these games do include digital sales, though. Uh, number 8 was Battlefield 1. Number 7 was Madden 17. Number 6 was Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Siege. Great to see that get a bump again, because they're just going through Season 2 now. Uh, number 5 was Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. Number 4 was NBA 2K17. Number 3 was Grand Theft Auto five because this fucking game will never leave the top 10 list number two was resident evil 7 biohazard that shows continued momentum congratulations there capcom and number one is for honor by ubisoft an excellent excellent melee third person fighting game so happy to see it uh being the best-selling game in the month of february i'm going to assume that uh Horizon Zero Dawn will probably win the month of March. Probably. That's my guess. Now let's go over to the Cursed Land of Train... Mm, Cursed Land of Tea and Crumpets, known as the United Kingdom. It's not really a country, it's a territory, but whatever. Here are the top 10 best-selling games over in the UK. Number 10 was Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. Number 9 was 1-2 Switch. Oh. Oh, Jesus. Why would you do that to yourself? Number eight is Rocket League. Number seven is FIFA 17. Number six is Nier Automata. I'll actually have my review of Nier Automata out on Tuesday, so check that out at youtube.com slash video games are dumb. Number five was Grand Theft Auto V. I love it when the numbers line up like that. Number four was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Number three was Lego Worlds. Number two was Horizon Zero Dawn, but number one was Ghost Recon Wildlands. Uh, you know, I played a bit of Ghost Recon Wildlands. It did not particularly stand out to me. It's a very, uh... Very kind of uh, empty open world game. Hard to explain, but just 
I enjoyed what I played of it. You know, it's like a stealth um, infantry sneaking across uh, enemy bases and picking people off with silencers. It's it's good. Uh, it just took a long time for it to get hooks in me, and once it did, I just didn't really. I don't know. There's a je ne sais quoi to it that's just not there. I hope I use that right. Let's talk about where the ten best-selling games over in Japan, which is the Curse of the Land of Trains. Got it right this time. Number 10 was Super Bomberman R. Oh. Why would they do that to themselves? On the Nintendo Switch. Number 9 was Dragon Quest Monsters Joker 3 Professional on the 3DS. Number 8 was Pokemon Sun and Moon on the 3DS. Number 7 was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Wii U. Number 6 was Nier Automata on the PlayStation 4. Number 5 was 1-2 Switch on the Nintendo Switch. Good God. Why would they do that to themselves? Uh, number four was Horizon Zero Dawn. Number three was The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild on the Nintendo Switch. Number two was uh, Kingdom Hearts HD 1 and 2 Remix on the PlayStation 4. And number one was, surprise, surprise, Ghost Recon Wildlands. i just kind of surprised to see that being really popular in Japan, though I suppose Ubisoft, being a French company, has greater access to maybe Japanese marketing strategies. Um, in case you don't know, Japan and France, they're actually kind of buddy-buddy. So, kind of cool stuff. Anyway, let us talk about where the best-selling consoles over in Japan. Starting it off with the Nintendo Switch with 61,998. PlayStation 4 with 28,902. New 3DS LL with 18,360. PlayStation Vita with 8,398. PlayStation 4 Pro with 6,398. 2DS with 4,094. Uh, <laughs> New 3DS with 1,227. PlayStation 3 with 639. Wii U with 430. And in last place... It's the Xbox One, with 117 for the second week in a row. Xbox is in last place. Come on, Xbox! You can do it! You can sell more units than the Wii U, as soon as Zelda stops being popular. But I believe in you, Xbox One. Well, that's going to have to do it for the Chart Park. The land where money grows on trees. Well, you know what? It's been a couple of weeks. But we are bringing back a segment. That's right. We have another segment before we get on to strong history. That's right. It's time to get tiny. It's time for Pocket Talk. Pocket Talk. Pocket Talk. We only have one story in Pocket Talk because, hey, it's Pocket Talk. It's supposed to be tiny. Uh, after its December debut on iOS, Super Mario Run will finally come to Android platforms this week. Nintendo has announced the popular mobile title will arrive on Google Play stores on March 23rd. While a free demo is available, the full game will cost $9.99, much like it does on uh, iOS. That's really the whole story right there, and I gotta say, I've got an iPad, which of course is Apple, so I have had the chance to play Super Mario Run, but I didn't buy it, because I want to wait for it to come out on my phone, and I'm definitely going to be picking it up. I've heard some mixed reception about Super Mario Run, but what I played, I really liked, so I'm actually really pumped to check it out. That's really the whole story. There's your PSA for Super Mario Run, and that's going to have to do it for Pocket Talk, Pocket Talk, Pocket Talk. Let us take the mushroom once again. Good mushroom. Good mushroom. Well, we have come to the end of the show. And of course, this is the final part of the show. <laughs> it's been a long day. Can you tell? This is the uh, final part of the show where we take a look back at the week that was 10 years ago and beyond to discover the anniversaries of game releases and console releases and something we like to call strong history 10 years ago on the xbox 360 castlevania symphony of the night was re-released just thought that was interesting 
11 years ago, the Godfather game was launched on the Xbox, Windows, Xbox 360, and PlayStation 2. Oh, I'm sorry, it was not on the Xbox 360. It was on all of the last-gen consoles. It would come to the 360, uh, I believe, later that year. Or earlier that year. I can't really remember. I know the Godfather game is not, you know, fondly recalled by many other people, but I really loved it. I went to every single bar, and I... I wrangled control of it. I took over every warehouse. Godfather game just had fantastic shooting. It was one of those games where you would highlight people with the uh, the left trigger, but then you would move the right analog stick around their body, kind of like an outline, so you could actually aim particular parts, like heads and whatnot. Or, you know, if you weren't trying to kill them, maybe kneecaps. It was a cool game. I really liked it. Also, 11 years ago, Metal Gear Acid 2 was released on the PSP. This was the sequel to Metal Gear Acid, obviously, um, but it's just a really great game. These were card games based off of the Metal Gear franchise, so you would drop things like, you know, Gray Fox, and then it would show an animation of the ninja. Really cool uh, turn-based strategy combined with card games, and also instead of a weird conspiracy theory riddled world that only Kojima could come up with, uh, if you get a chance, I do recommend you check out Metal Gear Solid 2. And if you can actually uh, find a copy, maybe get the 3D glasses that go with the PSP. It's it's pretty weird, but it's kind of awesome. Uh, 11 years ago, Beautiful Joe Red Hot Rumble was launched on the PSP. And this port of the GameCube PS2 game would mark the last standalone entry of Beautiful Joe. It's been 11 years, Capcom. Come on! Make another Beautiful Joe. Those games were great. You played inside of a giant movie, and you could speed up time or slow it down, and... This was actually a Smash Brothers ripoff, but I figured this was a good opportunity to say, Hey! Make more Beautiful Joe. Also 11 years ago, Sony ended production of the PlayStation 1. Now we're talking about the end of the PlayStation 3. It's just... It's just crazy, dog. It's just crazy. Uh, 12 years ago... Twisted Metal Hang On was released. Luminous was released. And Ridge Racer was released because 12 years ago, Sony launched the PlayStation Portable, a.k.a. the PSP, a criminally underrated handheld. Yes, the Nintendo DS sold a lot. Yes, the Nintendo DS has amazing games. But the PSP was basically PlayStation 2, 2, and even PlayStation 1, 2. I know that sounds confusing, just have to take my word for it. There were so many classics on here, and there were few launch titles as excellent as Ridge Racer on the PSP. I used to hang out with some people, we'd take out our PSPs, play it ad hoc, and just, you know, try and outrace each other. And just that screen was so gorgeous back in the day. Of course, my launch PSP had a couple of dead pixels, and then somebody stole my PSP when I was at a bar. You bastards. But of course, later on, I would buy a PSP Go, and later a Vita. I love the PSP. So good. But I do not love that, uh... <laughs> that internet campaign that they launched. Uh, PSP for Christmas. Whatever, Google it. It's painful to listen to. Also, 12 years ago, The Matrix Online launched the MMO featuring, uh, the iconography of The Matrix franchise. You know, it, it barely wasn't that great, but they did have cool storylines. I believe it ended sometime in 2011. And lastly, for 12 years ago, the original God of War launched. Fantastic game. Didn't make it on my list, but I do love the original uh, God of War and, you know, David Jaffe just doing amazing things. Uh, and we'll have a brand new God of War, hopefully out by the end of this year. Hopefully. Hopefully. Maybe it'll be next year, though. Uh, 13 years ago, the original Far Cry was released, which of course was with Crytek and Ubisoft working together. Now Ubisoft still makes Crytek games, and Crytek makes bad business decisions. 
I'm really proud of that joke. 14 years ago, Pokemon Ruby and Pokemon Sapphire were launched on the Game Boy Advance. By this point, I kind of tuned out of the, uh, uh, the, uh, Pokemon franchise, but other people said it's one of the best, but, I don't know. It was red and blue for me. And then everything else was like, eh, this is good, it's not as good. Also 14 years ago, Dragon Ball Z Ultimate Battle 22 was launched on the PlayStation in America. That's right, in 2003, there was a PlayStation 1 game that actually did very, very well, because People want some Dragon Ball Z games, and so they released this horrible 3D fighting game that had been out in Japan for five or six years, Ultimate Battle 22. If you've never played it before, uh, just take a bunch of Legos, throw them in a blender, and then, uh, you know, maybe light a firecracker. That's what the game looks like. Not as good, but mostly what it looks like. Fifteen years ago, the Legacy of Kane Blood Omen 2 was launched on the Xbox, and if I'm not mistaken, it launched as an Xbox exclusive for like a week, maybe a week or two, and then it was released on the PlayStation 2 and GameCube, I want to say that. Uh, this was just a really awesome, old-school adventure-style game, uh, where you played as Kane, the bad guy from Legacy of Kane, and you had to go around and suck blood and and uh, kill off your former allies. Uh, it was just a really great game. I enjoyed it. I bet it doesn't hold up at all, but I really liked it. 16 years ago, over in Japan, Castlevania Circle of the Moon was released, Fire Pro Wrestling was released, Mega Man Battle Network was released, Super Mario Advance was released, and Yu-Gi-Oh! Dungeon Dice Monsters was released because 16 years ago, the Game Boy Advance was launched in Japan. Wow, what a great handheld. You know what that was like? That was like the SNES 2. Now, do you see what I was going for? Uh, I gotta say, that launch lineup alone. Just, goddamn, Metal Gear, not Metal Gear, Mega Man Battle Network, Fire Pro Wrestling, and Castlevania, and Super Mario, that's good enough just to buy a system. That's a goddamn launch uh, lineup right there. I, uh, god, what was I gonna say about this? Oh yeah, what was really cool about the Game Boy Advance, you can play your old Game Boy games. Backwards compatibility on a handheld, it's badass. Eight, mm, nope, yep. 18 years ago, on the PlayStation, Gex, Deep Covered Gecko, was released, and we haven't seen Gex since. That's really sad. Also, 18 years ago, Beetle Adventure Racing was launched on the Nintendo 64. It was a game where you drove around in VW Beetles, and you drove through waterfalls, and... It sounds stupid, but that was an amazing racing game. I highly recommend everyone check that off to get a chance. Uh... 20 years ago, in arcades, Tekken 3 was launched. And also 20 years ago, Castlevania Symphony of the Night was launched in Japan 20 years ago. But I already talked about how much I love that game. You can listen to it at the beginning of the show if you somehow don't remember. Uh, 21 years ago, 3D Tetris was launched on the Virtual Boy. We never get a chance to talk about Virtual Boy, so I wanted to slip that one in. And over in Japan, 21 years ago, Resident Evil, the original one. Great game. Great game. 23 years ago, Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo was launched in arcades, which of course was the faster version of Street Fighter, and I'll admit it, the superior version of Street Fighter. But 25 years ago, over in Japan, Shining Force launched on the Genesis, one of the all-time great RPG franchises that never gets enough credit. Sure, if you're on certain internet forums, people will rave about how Shining Force 3 is a masterpiece and everyone should buy a modded Saturn and use the English, uh, translation. But, um, you know, in the general public, they know Final Fantasy, they even know Chrono Trigger, they don't know anything about Shining Force, which was a top-down turn-based strategy game. I highly recommend you check out the sequel, Shining Force 2, because that game goes places. They establish so many things and then they take it away, and it's brilliant. 25 years ago, Shining Force. Probably don't play the Game Gear games. It's a really good franchise. 
<laughs> but that's gonna have to do it for strong history. God damn. This is a long episode. So let's hurry up and close up the show. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Cryochop. That's at Dr. Karate Chop. Or you can follow the pressure cast at VGA Dumb. If you feel like going on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash VGA Dumb. Or you can tweet. Um, mm, 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 mm. Or you can email pressurecast at gmail.com or text or call 954-947-7377 or leave a comment below on this here YouTube video page. Uh, what's going to be coming up this week? I'm going to have my video review of Nier Automata that will be going up on Tuesday. I highly recommend that you check that out. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I'm working real hard to get that review out before playing Mass Effect so I can have that review out by next week. Other than that, nothing else. Same old, same old. Keep on trucking. All that good stuff. Uh, yeah, I think, you know what, for once, we'll just end the pressure cast on a positive note, because we all need joy in our life, don't we? Because at the end of the day, we're all gonna die. Ah, god damn it, I screwed it up. Eh, it doesn't matter. But the pressure cast will never die, because the pressure cast is forever. See you guys. <laughs>